Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Post Podium, the podcast where former Jeopardy contestants are instead given questions and asked to provide answers. I'm your host, Jarek Bruel, and today's episode is all about the inaugural Jeopardy Second Chance competition. To refresh everyone's memory, 18 contestants from seasons 37 and 38, who were oh so close to winning during their initial appearance, were invited back to play once again for a chance to compete in this year's TOC. The 18 contestants were divided into two groups of nine, where the winners of three semifinals Final matches competed in a two-day total point of fair final. This meant two people from the SEC would round out the 21-person TOC roster. In this episode, I'll do my best to recap each of the episodes in the SEC and give my opinions and thoughts afterwards. As always, if you're interested in a specific topic, I've provided timestamps in the episode description for your convenience. We've got a lot to unpack, so without further ado, I hope you enjoy this episode of Post Podium. Okay, so starting with the first semifinal game in week one, we have Cindy Zhang versus Aaron Goulias versus Jessica Stevens. In this game, I had Aaron as my pick to win, followed by Cindy, then Jessica. Originally, I called this one an upset, but in the podcast episode where Roan, Zach, and I made our predictions for the SEC, I actually picked Jessica. So between my power rankings and what I, what I said in that episode... I've covered all my bases. All jokes aside, Jessica won the semifinal match in a lock, but looking at the game stats on Geometry, you wouldn't think this to be the case, at least at first glance. So let's break it down. In the Jeopardy round, Aaron led in time value, earning roughly $2,000 worth of extra opportunities to answer through buzzer timing. And by the end of the round, he was in second with $3,000. Meanwhile, Cindy led in solo value, earning roughly $1,800 worth of extra opportunities to answer as the sole person to buzz in. Unfortunately, an all-in wager on the first daily double cost her, and by the end of the round, she was in third with $2,000. In double jeopardy, once again, Aaron led in time value, earning about $1,200 of extra opportunities to answer through buzzer timing. But this time, he also led in solo value, picking up roughly $5,600 worth of extra clues by being uncontested on the buzzer. Here's the issue. While Aaron was indeed fast and buzzed in on many clues when no one else attempted, he accumulated a few negs which totaled to $4,400 and missed the third daily double, losing another $3,000. In the end, Aaron finished with an accuracy of 75%. Now, this isn't to say that Jessica won purely because of Aaron's mistakes. In fact, she had the most estimated buzzes uncontested, about 6-7, had the best accuracy in this match at 90%, and had the best Coriat score of 16,200. But you can't deny that Aaron being off his game, Cindy losing the buzzer race in both rounds of play, along with 11 triple sumpers were all contributing factors to Jessica locking up the game. With the way final played out, had Aaron's accuracy been slightly better, he could have taken the lead going into final and won this semifinal match. Some other comments I had about this game, I really liked Cindy going all in on the first daily double when she was in the lead. I'm sure I've mentioned this before, but you should always be going all in on that first daily double. If you get it right, it gives you significant distance between you and your nearest opponent. If you get it wrong, there's plenty of time for a comeback since mathematically, two-thirds of the money available in a single game can be found in double jeopardy. As for the second and third daily doubles, my belief is that if you find them within the first 10 clues, you should also consider wagering everything. I did think Aaron needed to step on the gas and go all in on the third daily double, especially when Jessica had a runaway at that point. In fact, had Aaron been right, Jessica wouldn't have had a lock game anymore, which she maintained for all of Double Jeopardy. That's all I have to say about the first semifinal game. Let's move on to the second, which featured Erica Wiener Amachi, Tracy Pitzel, and Molly Carroll. In this game, I had Tracy as my pick to win, followed by Erica, then Molly. 
and in the end, Molly pulled off the upset victory. Now, for those who don't know, Erica was an alternate for the SEC, and she filled in for Isaac Applebaum from the JNCC. She made her Jeopardy debut on July 18th, 2022, and lost in a tiebreaker to William Cho. And actually, the final scores for this game were wild. Emily Fiasco was a three-game Jeopardy champion in third place going into final and wagered everything, finishing with 15,600. William was in Stratton's dilemma and opted to cover Emily's doubled score, finishing with 15,601. Then you have Erica, who only wagered 4,001, which put her in a tie with William. Had Erica wagered to cover William, she would have been a Jeopardy champion. It's unfortunate we couldn't watch Isaac compete, but in an episode of the Inside Jeopardy podcast, it was confirmed that Isaac would be able to compete again in the future in some capacity. Getting back to the game itself, it was Tracy who commanded the buzzer in this game with a success rate of 64%, and accrued approximately $4,900 worth of extra opportunities to answer as a result. Meanwhile, Molly had approximately $5,300 worth of extra opportunities to answer from being uncontested on the buzzer. In my opinion, this was probably the most balanced semifinal match of the week. What set Molly apart, at least what I think, from her competitors was her keen ability to find and convert on the second and third daily doubles, picking up an additional $6,000. Molly went into final in second behind Erica, but a triple stumper, along with a wager to cover Tracy, was what allowed Molly to win this match. Everyone had their own strengths in this game, Molly for the reasons I just mentioned, Erica in that despite having the lowest number of successful buzzes overall, was able to find her rhythm in double jeopardy and maintain the lead after the 10th clue while also having the best accuracy at 87%. And Tracy was able to remain in contention going into final by winning the buzzer race. Had her accuracy been slightly better or if she had gotten one of the daily doubles, this would have been a much tighter match than it already was. Some other comments I have about this game, I think my only criticism and it's very minor, um, was when Erica wagered 800 instead of the $1,000 she had on the first daily double. It was the eighth clue of the round, and there was still plenty of game to play, plus, you know, why pass up the opportunity to say a true daily double, you know? Also, I've written down here that this game had the most triple stumpers in both weeks of the SEC at 12, four of them from the Jeopardy round, and eight of them from Double Jeopardy. Moving on, we have the third semifinal game of the week, which featured James Frazier, Renee Russell, and Pam Schoenberg. In this game, I had Pam as my pick to win, followed by James, then Renee. Although James won, I wouldn't call this one an upset. Really, this was a battle between James's ability to go uncontested on a lot of clues versus Pam's mastery of the buzzer in Double Jeopardy, which I'll highlight a bit later. Pam had the best accuracy of this match at 100%, while James wasn't too far behind at 95. Renee's accuracy was 79%, which can be attributed to her attempts to catch up to James and Pam in Double Jeopardy after losing $5,000 on the third daily double, causing her to finish in the red, unfortunately. In the Jeopardy round, James led in time value and solo value, picking up roughly $3,700 worth of extra opportunities to answer in total. In Double Jeopardy, James led in solo value, picking up roughly $4,400 worth of extra opportunities from being uncontested on the buzzer. But at the same time, Pam found her buzzer rhythm, which allowed her to make a late game run after the 18th clue in Double Jeopardy. By the 20th clue, James lost his lock, and Pam created a two-thirds scenario going into final. Since Renee couldn't compete in final, Pam's victory ultimately boiled down to James getting final wrong. Although, by wagering 5500 Pam forced herself to get final right in order to win. In the end, it didn't matter as much since James got final Jeopardy right. Some other comments I have have for this game on the second daily double I was kind of hoping James would risk more than $36.99 it was the third clue of the round so I was anticipating James to be more aggressive especially against someone like Pam and if he did wager more on it then maybe he would have kept his lock going into final 
Also on third daily double, Renee should have just wagered everything. I mean, James had more than double her score, so she might as well take the opportunity to make it a true daily double. I know a lot of people online were excited about the prospect of Pam leading up to the SEC, with some even predicting her to win the whole thing. I mean, I certainly thought she lived up to the hype. A $15,400 Coriat with no incorrect responses and with no help from daily doubles at that. That's, that, that's quite impressive. James, on the other hand, was relatively unknown and not many people knew what to expect from him. Uh, I, I certainly didn't know what to expect from him. He wasn't even on my shortlist of people who I thought would qualify for the SEC. So to see him win this semifinal and go head-to-head -head with Pam was nothing short of impressive. And after the semifinal match, I actually thought he was the best position to win this week, which leads us into the first game of the finals featuring James, Jessica, and Molly. Going by my power rankings I created before the SEC, I had James as my pick to win the tournament, followed by Jessica, then Molly. In the first game of the finals, Jessica won the buzzer race with a 51% success rate, with James not too far behind at 45%. However, in spite of winning the buzzer race, it was James who had about $2,800 worth of extra opportunities, the most in this match, by answering the higher value clues in the Jeopardy round and one-third of the board in double Jeopardy. In terms of solo value, James leads in this statistic, earning about $3,600 worth of extra opportunities to answer uncontested. He also found two of the three daily doubles and converted on one of them. Meanwhile, Jessica dominated in the Jeopardy round by sweeping the phobias category and answering nearly half the board. As for Molly, I don't have any notes for her other than her double Jeopardy round, which was much better than her Jeopardy round as she got slightly more value out of winning the buzzer race than being uncontested in buzzes. Final Jeopardy was a triple correct, which put James in first heading into game two, followed by Jessica, who was less than $3,000 behind him, and Molly with a respectable $15,600. Some other comments I have written down here. I understand James's decision to wager conservatively on the third daily double to maintain his lead over Jessica, but I think he should have gone all in on the second daily double, which was the fifth clue in double jeopardy. This game also had the least number of triple stumpers in both weeks of the SEC with only three, one in the jeopardy round and two in double jeopardy. In fact, there were zero incorrect responses in the jeopardy round. Jessica even went 21 for 21 in the clues she managed to buzz in on. After this game finished, I thought that James was in the best position to take this entire thing, but I wasn't counting Jessica out. In spite of James's stellar performance in double jeopardy, he and Jessica exchanged the lead multiple times in the Jeopardy round, so it was possible that something like that could happen again. Or perhaps Molly would be the one trading blows. But with the momentum James had, I thought he was in good shape going into game two. Or so I thought. Moving on to the second game of this two-game finals, in a two-day total point affair, anything can happen, and that was surely the case here. This time, James won the buzzer race, getting in 51% of the time, Molly right behind him at 50%, and Jessica at 41%. James once again came out on top with about $1,600 worth of extra opportunities to answer through buzzer timing and $3,400 worth of extra opportunities to answer uncontested. But in spite of these impressive stats, James had some real trouble with accuracy in this game. He finished with a correct response rate of 74%, while Molly finished with the best accuracy of the game at 94%. James also finished net negative in daily doubles, losing a total of 5,600, which I guess it's technically 11200 if you consider what he could have earned from that daily double. After the second daily double, Jessica maintained her lead for the rest of Double Jeopardy. Had it not been for James's accuracy, it's possible Jessica wouldn't have had a locked tournament. And speaking of which, she gave us quite the scare by wagering 10000 which 
could have lost for the tournament if James was right in final. Some other comments I have written down here. I really liked James going all in on the first daily double on the eighth clue of the Jeopardy round. He was in third when he found it and managed to take the lead away from Molly. And even though he got the second daily double wrong, I admire him for going all in, especially when it was the fourth clue in double Jeopardy. And he knew he had to create some distance between him and Jessica. Now, I actually didn't mind Jessica wagering conservatively on the third daily double. She found it as the 15th clue in the round. There was still plenty of money left on the board for James to make a late game comeback. So maintaining the lead while also shutting out Molly was very strategic of her. With Jessica's win over James and Molly, that wraps up the first week of the SEC. Now, when I did my power rankings for the TOC, I ended up placing Jessica on the same tier as Christine Welchel, Zach Newkirk, and Courtney Shaw. While her run was definitely impressive, the way she managed to win her semifinal game in a lock and the way she went toe-to-toe -to -toe with James, I still thought that they were, there were still plenty of players above her who I thought would do better than her. I mean, her, her quarterfinal opponents were Sam Buttry and Zach Newkirk. I thought she had a good matchup against Zach, but seeing that uh, Sam was ranked, at least in my power rankings, like three levels above her, I honestly didn't think that she'd be able to do that well against him. Maybe against Zach and perhaps um, Ryan Long, Brian Chang, or Tyler Road, but as as Sam was in the A tier with a bunch of other uh, Jeopardy Giants, uh, I, I wasn't totally confident in Jessica's ability to win her quarterfinal as much as I wanted to. Not as much as Rowan for sure, which I'll get into, but yeah, I wasn't totally sure that she'd be able to advance past the quarterfinals. So moving on to the second week of the SEC, we start out with the first game of the week starring Sarah Snyder, Jeff Smith, and Sadie Goldberger. In this game, I had Jeff as my pick to win, followed by Sarah, then Sadie. I actually had Jeff as my pick to win either week just because he was in the S tier along with Alicia O'Hare. His stats were really good in the game he lost in, so I felt very confident in his ability to take this, and he almost did. In the end, Sadie scored an upset win, at least through my eyes, and even pulled a power move in Final Jeopardy by writing out Hemingway's full name. Now, unlike the first week of the SEC, we can actually compare Sadie's performance in her semifinal game against her first appearance back in June. And from the looks of it, it seems like Sadie maintained the same buzzer rhythm from April when she taped her first episode to September when the SEC taped. In her initial appearance, she was getting in on the buzzer 63% of the time and had about $5,800 worth of extra opportunities to answer through buzzer timing. On top of this, Sadie also had $3,100 worth of extra opportunities to answer uncontested. In her semifinal match against Sarah and Jeff, Sadie was just as consistent getting in on the buzzer 59% of the time, the best of the three, had about $5,900 worth of extra opportunities to answer from buzzer timing, and about $3,000 worth of extra opportunities to answer uncontested. And something else I noticed on Geometry, Sadie went on a tear from clues 5 to 15 in Double Jeopardy at one point, having nearly three times more money than Jeff in second. Just like in her first appearance, Sadie was in the lead going into final, but it certainly wasn't an easy task. Despite Jeff struggling with the buzzer, he was able to remain competitive by outperforming Sarah and Sadie in uncontested buzzes. Jeff had about $6,000 worth of extra opportunities to answer uncontested, and this is backed by the fact that he attempted the most clues in the game with 47 attempts. If it weren't for Jeff's depth of knowledge, it's possible Sadie could have won this game in a lock since Jeff missed out on about $2,200 worth of clues because of his struggle with the buzzer. I don't have much else to say other than the fact that Jeff really needed to find at least one daily double in double jeopardy to potentially take the lead away from Sadie by going all in. Unfortunately, Sadie found both of them late in the round back to back, denying him the opportunity. 
Oh, and this game is also on par with Erica, Tracy, and Molly's semifinal match from week one in terms of average contention, which, according to Geometry, is the percentage of clues attempted by multiple contestants. So, very competitive game all around. Moving on to the second semifinal game of week two of the SEC, we have Tom Philippos, Alicia O'Hare, and Jack Weller. In this game, I had Alicia as my pick to win, followed by Tom, then Jack. So not only was I surprised by Jack's win, I was also surprised by how he won in a lock game. A lock that wasn't secure until the very last $400 clue in Double Jeopardy, which was a triple stumper. By all accounts, this game was extremely even. Buzz success rates range from 50 to 58%, and accuracy ranges from 84 to 86%. In the Jeopardy round, Jack led in time value and solo value, picking up about $2,600 in extra opportunities to answer combined. In Double Jeopardy, Jack was actually losing the buzzer race to Alicia and Tom, losing out on about $600 worth of extra opportunities to answer. Luckily for Jack, the Double Jeopardy board must have played to his strengths because he was able to uncover five to six extra clues and about $7,600 worth of extra opportunities to answer uncontested. This coupled with the fact that Jack found all three daily doubles, the second and third ones found back-to-back, -back, I might add, helped to solidify his victory. Now, even though she didn't win, I'm glad Alicia was still able to put up a fight. She got the most value out of winning the buzzer battle, and perhaps if Jack missed a daily double, or if she got at least one, things would have been different. Or maybe not, since Jack was the only one to get final right, so he would have won the game even if he didn't have a lock on his hands. One of the best moments from this competition actually came from this game. It was in the Jeopardy round, plurals that don't end in S for 400. The clue said moose, and Jack responded with, what is meese, and... I don't know if he was trolling or not, but I'm going to assume he was just because it makes his interaction with Ken that much funnier. I mean, come on, Jack. Really? Meese? <laughs> Moving on to the final semifinal game of week two of the SEC. Try saying that one three times fast. We have Nikki Porcaro, Doe Park, and Rowan Ward. In this game, I had Rowan as my pick to win, followed by Nikki, then Doe. And I believe this is the first game in both weeks of the SEC where I correctly predicted the winner of a semifinal game. So I was quite happy about that one. Biggest takeaways from this semifinal match are Rowan being incredibly dominant and Nikki struggling to find her buzzer timing. In the Jeopardy round, Rowan benefited from being the best on the buzzer, picking up five to six extra clues and roughly $3,100 in extra opportunities to answer. Rowan also swept the Hidden Brain podcast category with clues all about psychology, picking up $3,000 from that category alone. In Double Jeopardy, even though Nikki found her rhythm and earned about $2,200 worth of extra opportunities through buzzer timing, it was Rowan who pulled through finding both daily doubles, earning a total of $12,600. Rowan also benefited by being uncontested on the buzzer in Double Jeopardy, uncovering four to five extra clues and picking up $6,700 worth of extra opportunities to answer. Though I do think it's worth noting that after the sixth clue in Double Jeopardy, Rowan went on a string of negs that took their lead from 12 times Doe's score to roughly double his score by the 16th clue. But Rowan was able to pick up nearly all of the remaining clues to secure the lockout with nearly four times more money than Nikki heading into final. Now before we move on to the finals, I want to mention that this matchup was very much a cruel twist of fate for all three contestants. In September, while I was scrolling through Twitter, Nikki posted a picture of her, Rowan, and Doe outside of some bar and played bar trivia together merely 48 hours before they played their semifinal match. I'd like to think some producer at Sony must have been nearby and thought to themselves, gee, this could make some really good dramatic television, but I'm just amazed a coincidence like that managed to happen in the first place. 
And now we have the two-day total point affair finals between Rowan, Jack, and Sadie. And with how hot Rowan was coming into this game after winning their semifinal match in a lock, I was rooting for them to win, followed by Jack and Sadie. That being said, I was not disappointed. Rowan attempted to buzz in on 53 clues, 20 more than both Jack and Sadie, and is on par with a super champion in syndication. They had mind-boggling stats in this game. Through timing, Rowan was able to uncover 12 to 13 more clues and earn roughly $9,500 in extra opportunities to answer. By being uncontested on the buzzer, Rowan was able to uncover 10 to 11 more clues and earn roughly $9,200 in extra opportunities to answer. They found all three daily doubles, finished with a $32,000 Coriat, and never conceded the lead. By clue 16 in the Jeopardy round, Rowan peaked with a lead nearly 30 times more than Jack, who was in second place with 400. And to top things off, Rowan was flawless in double Jeopardy if you don't count their miss on the second daily double. This was a masterclass in Jeopardy top by Rowan, and I was absolutely stunned by how well they did. With Rowan going into game two with $30,000 and over six times more money than Sadie in second with 4,800, it was hard not to see them as the eventual winner of week two. But after watching James stumble a bit in the second game of the first week finals, there was still the possibility that Rowan could encounter something similar. Game two of this two game finals was much more competitive, which put Jack back into contention to win. In fact, he went into final with a big enough lead that prevented Rowan from winning the competition in a lock. Rowan wagered 12,201 to cover Jack's best possible total score, and Jack went all in. Final ended up being a triple stumper, and Rowan secured $35,000 and a spot in the Tournament of Champions. Had Jack been the only one to come up with the correct response, he would have emerged victorious. Though I will note that if Jack capped his wager at $17,999, he could have finished in second with a $20,000 prize, since doing so would prevent him from falling below Sadie's best possible total score. I gotta hand it to Jack. He really made this game and finals interesting. He found the first and second daily doubles, picking up $8,800. He found his buzzer timing in double jeopardy, picking up about $5,800 worth of extra opportunities to answer, and he held on to the lead for all of double jeopardy. Unfortunately for him, Rowan was still a sharp, and even though they lost about $1,400 worth of opportunities to answer through buzzer timing, once again, it was their ability to go uncontested on the buzzer that led them to victory, about $4,500 worth of opportunities throughout the game. Unlike the second game of the first week finals, this wasn't a case of the leader faltering to their opponents, but rather one in which second place ascended. That being said, I think I liked this week's finals a bit more than the first week's. I think Jeopardy is its best when all three contestants are popping off, so getting to watch Jack make a comeback against Rowan, who looked unbeatable after Game 1, heck, even after their semifinal win, it was much more enjoyable than watching James slowly fall to Jessica in the first week. So after the SEC, knowing Jessica and Rowan were the winners heading into the Tournament of Champions, I put Jessica in the B tier with Christine Welchel, Zach Newkirk, and Courtney Shaw. For Rowan, I put them in the A tier with Andrew He, Erica Hasek, Jonathan Fisher, and Sam Buttry. And thinking about it, I think it was fair to place them there. If we compare Jessica and Rowan's SEC performances side by side, without even looking at the stats, just watching the episodes, you definitely feel more confident in Rowan based on how they dominated in the semifinals and both games of the finals. And outside of Jeopardy, Rowan is very much involved in the trivia scene online and offline, so that information influenced my decision a bit as well. 
And based on how they ended up faring in the TOC, I was surprised by the results, but not necessarily because of Jessica and Rowan's performances. In the TOC, Jessica went up against Zach Newkirk and Sam Buttry, and Rowan went up against Courtney Shaw and John Foth. Sam and John ended up winning their quarterfinal matches, not only eliminating the SEC winners, but also in locked games, the only locked games of the quarterfinals. Was I shocked? A bit, yes, considering I just watched Jessica and Rowan go on fantastic SEC runs. But if anything, I was more surprised by John and Sam's individual performances in their quarterfinal matches. Now, I actually predicted Sam to win his quarterfinal match, but the way he dominated this game cannot be understated. Most attempts in the game at 52, a buzz percentage of 72%, uncovered 8 to 9 extra clues through buzzer timing, and uncovered 10 to 11 extra clues uncontested. At one point in double jeopardy, Sam was the only one with money, peaking at 14,400 before Zach came back to life. And I'll be honest when I say that I actually googled the record for lowest finish after double jeopardy, thinking Jessica might have a shot at breaking that record. And she nearly did. The record for lowest finish after Double Jeopardy is currently held by Patrick Pierce, who in 2021, in Matt Amodio's fourth appearance on the show, finished with a score of negative 7,400. The lowest Jessica reached in her quarterfinal match was negative 6,600. Honestly, you can't really fault Jessica here. I mean, Sam was on another level with his buzzer timing and depth of knowledge, so... It made sense for her to take more risks and swing for the fences, so to speak. I mean, you have to, right? There's no other option if you want to remain in contention. As for John, I didn't really know what to expect, but if we take a look at how his quarterfinal match took out, we can see that he and Rowan exchanged the lead multiple times midway through the Jeopardy round. He kept the lead over Rowan at the start of Double Jeopardy, but once he found the second and third daily doubles, back-to-back -back, I might add, that's when he sealed the game. And if you're interested in hearing more about John's quarterfinal match, you can and should listen to the last podcast episode where I talked to John about all things geometry and how it helped him prepare for the TOC. John picked up $11,000 through the daily doubles and finished with a score nearly three times more than Rowan's who finished in second. Now, if we take a look at this game stats, Rowan actually had the most attempts in the game at 41, but they had some significant trouble on the buzzer and only worsened going into double jeopardy. In fact, what kept Rowan in the lead during the jeopardy round was finding the first daily double and buzzing in on $1,000 worth of clues uncontested. In double jeopardy, John picked up roughly $4,500 worth of extra opportunities to answer through buzzer timing at the expense of Rowan who missed out on $3,200 worth of opportunities by losing the buzzer race. But it's not like the board was unfriendly to Rowan. In fact, their accuracy in double jeopardy was 100% and attempted only three less clues than John. Final ended up being a triple stumper, so who knows? Perhaps with an aggressive daily double wager, Rowan could have prevented John's lock and advanced to the semifinals. Also worth noting, John only missed one $600 clue in the Jeopardy round, and in double Jeopardy, there were zero incorrect responses from all three contestants. And with that, that brings us to the end of today's episode. This was a bit of a shorter one since I was alone, but... Joining me in the next episode is Tyler Road, who spoke to me about his Tournament of Champions experience and run, so make sure to hit that follow or subscribe button to be notified when that episode drops. Please rate this podcast on whatever platform you're listening to. Postponium is available on all sorts of listening platforms, including Amazon Music, Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Spotify, and Stitcher, so make sure to follow and subscribe for the latest episodes. I've been your host, Jarek Bruel, and remember, if someone asks what you're listening to, Always phrase your response in the form of a question. 
what is post-podium. See you next time.